Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. So uh, this morning, we're going to move on to another uh, very important teaching of Dogen's uh, from, uh, from his early period. Actually, the date of this particular fascicle from, uh, from Shobo Genzo is uh, 1239. So it's uh, four years before he uh, established a Heiji. Uh, definitely uh, early period Dogen. And uh, what I thought I would do this morning before I uh, uh, move into the fascicle that we're gonna be looking at, is, uh, and this is something I think I'll continue to do whenever I'm speaking about Dogen, which is probably going to happen more often than not for a while. Uh, but I'll, uh, as a prelude to these talks, I will kind of inject some background about Dogen. Since he is such a fundamental figure uh, for our practice, uh, it, it really does make sense that we have, have a general sense of his life, uh, his chronology of, of his teachings, especially as they relate to the particular teachings we're going to be looking at. Uh, so kind of along the lines of, uh, of what I did back during the March Sashin uh, with, with Coben. Uh, that, that first talk, uh, I, I focused on, on his life and his story. So while that's not going to be my focus this morning, I, I want to give you a little bit of uh, information which will give you kind of a background to, to the writing that we're going to then focus on. Uh, so first of all, his dates, and I'm, uh, I'm not a proponent of memorizing dates, but I guess if you were going to memorize any, Dogen's dates are good ones to, to memorize, and it's helpful that his, uh, his birth year is a nice round number. It's easy to memorize, 1200. It's kind of like the founder of jazz gives us that same uh, uh, benefit, you know, Louis Armstrong, his birth year, 1900. That's easy. <laughs> so two, two major figures in, uh, in world civilization, Dogen and Louis Armstrong, 1200, 1900. And then Dogen died at the age of 53 in 1253. So we're, his entire lifespan covers the first half of the 13th century. And it was in 1223, so he was 23 years old, that he, uh, he left Japan to, to pay his, uh, his famous visit to China, which ended up lasting for four years. Uh, and accompanying him on that journey was uh, Miozan, who was his, uh, his teacher from, uh, from the Rinzai Temple, uh, where he was practicing in Japan at the time. And, uh, and he went off to China to find, uh, you know, it's come down to us as, as being his search for, uh, for true Zen to find his true teacher. 
investigating, I mean, Zen Buddhism more generally, uh, traveled to Japan from, by way of China. So uh, just as, as American students have gone to Japan because because Buddhism traveled here from Japan, so many American students have gone to Japan kind of on a similar journey. They may have already found their true teacher here in the U.S., but they wanted to investigate uh, the source uh, where, where the Buddhism that came to the U.S. originated uh, prior to its landing in America. So, for the next four years, from 1223 to 1227, uh, Dogen was in China. And it was uh, at one of the temples he visited, Tiantang, uh, where he met his, what he referred to as his true teacher, Ru Jing, uh, from whom, and Ru Jing was in the lineage that, uh, that flows through uh, uh, Shito, the author of Sandokai and Song of the Grass Hut, and then several generations beyond him through Dongshan, uh, quite a few generations beyond him to Hongji, the author of uh, Cultivating the Empty Field, Guidepost of Silent Illumination, and, uh, and then several generations past Hongji, uh, that lineage passed through to Rujing. So Dogen, when he received tr transmission from Ru Jing, uh, his Ketchum Yaku, which in uh, yesterday's Jukai class, uh, Chris talked about, uh, his Ketchum Yaku uh, had all of those figures who also appear on, uh, on our Ketchum Yakus. Everybody who's practicing Soto Zen in America traces their lineage from Dogen. He, he was the founder of Soto Zen in China, or in Japan, rather. Uh, he, he brought that lineage back to Japan from his uh, four-year stay in China. So immediately upon his return in 1227, uh, the first thing he wrote was, was a piece that we're pretty familiar with from, from our chant book, Fukanza Zenji. Uh, the universal recommendation for the practice of Zaza. The, the work that we're going to be looking at today comes from, uh, as I said, uh, from 1239. So this is 12 years later. And he's at this time, he's, he's at the, uh, the first uh, practice center that he established, uh, Koshahorenji, and he would be there until uh, the establishment of Aheji in 1243. So, uh, that story to be continued, but uh, that brings us to the fascicle that we're going to look at, uh, which, as was the case with the last fascicle we looked at, which was uh, the, the awesome presence of active Buddhas, uh, the title is, is differently translated by uh, 
Kaz Tanahashi, and then by uh, Nishijima and Cross. So the Nishijima and Cross translation is mind here and now is Buddha. And the Tanahashi translation is mind itself is Buddha. So just as was the case uh, with, with the awesome presence where Nishijima and Cross translated that as the dignified behavior of, of active Buddhas. It's, it's kind of broadens our view at the very get-go of the subject matter of the fascicle to have these two slightly uh, slight variations in, in the title. Uh, so this notion of mind here and now is Buddha. For me at least, points to the, the inability to grasp it. It's here, it's now. And kind of contained in that statement is the fact that it's, it's in flux, it's impermanent. Mind. And that's why Zazen is so fundamental to our practice. In fact, uh, many have, have said that there are two basic tenets, we might say, of Soto Zen. One of those is Zazen itself, Shikantaza. The other one is mind here and now is Buddha. Those are kind of the whole, the whole deal is packed right into that. And we can certainly see, I think, that, uh, that Dogen's vast corpus of teachings are always circling around those two principal tenets. So while this is a very short fascicle, it's a pretty important one. Hugely important. And just to speak to this uh, notion of mind here and now is Buddha pointing to its, its insubstantiality, a significant portion of Dogen's fascicle is, is uh, focused on what he calls the Seneca heresy, Seneca being an Indian uh, practitioner who had the doctrine that stipulated a substantial notion of mind. Because when we hear this Zen teaching, mind here and now is Buddha, just as is the case with any such statement, we want to reach out and grab on. Turn mind into something. Turn Buddha into something. 
in, in logical parlance, we're kind of making the statement A is B. So A has to be something definite, B has to be something definite. But in Zen, you know, there's nothing to, to hold on to. It's one of the reasons why Zen uh, poses such, such challenges to logic. Logic is kind of anchored by the substantiality of things. And Zen is anchored by the insubstantiality of things. It, it throws the anchor overboard. The whole thing. And we just sail the ocean of reality. So the Seneca heresy, by of course turning mind into something substantial, it holds a doctrine that uh, even in the Western world, we're very familiar with this. It's really setting up a notion of a soul, that mind becomes this substantial entity that does not change, that survives the death of the body, And this is not what Buddhism means when it talks about mind. Mind, as we will see, is there is no separation between mind and everything. So the Buddhist teaching that everything is impermanent, is in flux. Mind is, is that, that activity, that state of affairs, the state that's, that's never steady, other than in its unsteadiness. So Dogen, that's why he spends a fair amount of time looking at the Seneca heresy, just to, to address this tendency we have, not just personally, but the tendency that our tra various traditions, both East and West, have had to turn mind into something substantial, into an immortal soul. And of course, that, as we know, was at the heart of Buddhist teachings on Atman, no self, no soul. So in that vein, we can see this fascicle, this teaching of Dogen's as just being a further elaboration of that core tenet of Buddha. What one of the reasons why his teaching was a break from Hinduism as it was practiced at that time in India. Because India held to that position that mind is substantial. There is a soul, Atman. But 
you know, if we use the term mind, we need a little guidance with that warning now, uh, based on Seneca's heresy, that warning about what it isn't. Uh, you know, there's, there's a basic Buddhist teaching about pointing to the mind. So what, what is it that's being pointed to? And in that vein, uh, there's, there's a figure from uh, about a century, over a century ago in American psychology who, uh, who wrote a, a pretty important book about religious experience, the varieties of religious experience, William James. And he looked at this subject, this matter of, of our experience. And his, his understanding, the point that he was uh, getting across in works like Varieties of Religious Experience was that our inner experience is our only experience. Everything we experience is there. So we, we can use the term mind to point to that. Now, science, of course, may seek an objective reality. But our only access to that reality is through the mind's internal subjective processing. We can process objective reality. But that's a creation of mind. So the human mind thus relentlessly interprets an objective reality by producing a subjective one. And so, uh, of course, uh, a heresy like Seneca's, his, his doctrine of, of reality, was just that. It was an objectification. And what Zen is teaching through Dogen and all who follow him is by pointing to the to the mind we're going back to the source and it's not mind in some narrow sense that's why in zen we have these notions of big mind small mind which could also get overblown and i'll talk about that uh, that more later but they can be helpful in terms of the notion of big mind is that notion of boundless mind which includes everything so when we we say mind itself is buddha mind here and now is buddha it's not a narrowing of reality it's an expansion of mind to include all things so all things, this, this teaching of Dogen's uh, that we find it in fascicles such as Mountains and Water Sutra, that all things are Buddha. 
are directly derived from this. If mind itself is Buddha, and mind is boundless and includes all beings, all things, all things would seem to be Buddha. And that's certainly Dogen's position, which he stated time and time again. So how uh, foundational is this uh, teaching? Dogen, in the, in the very opening sentence, tries to be crystal clear about it. He says, what Buddhas and ancestors have maintained without exception is the mind itself is Buddha. That's what's been handed down. So for people who, who then, with a, with a knowledge of the various practices and doctrines of Buddhism, can take this and connect the dots. So yesterday we were looking at precepts. How do the precepts fit into that? And that would be several more talks, so I'm not going there today. But it's just one example that I invite you to think about. Since I see uh, lots of rakasus out there, lots of people taking the precepts very seriously, uh, it, it's an important matter. It's one we, we looked at pretty intensively yesterday. Mind here and now is Buddha, is awakening. How does that relate to our practice with precepts? How does that relate with our practice in a world with racism, with environmental crisis, with anger, with lying? And so on with killing. And contained in this, which is why I, I like the Nishijima translation, mind here and now is Buddha. Is this this very important fact that uh, that to practice this dharma means to be your experience at this time and in this place and it's because of what i indicated earlier setting up shikantaza and mind here and now is Buddha, that this notion of practice, here and now, practice enlightenment, they're one and the same. And it's, it's, a, pra it's a continuous practice, moment after moment after moment. 
That's awakening. That's Buddha. It's an active Buddha. And it's, it's available to us constantly. All we have to do is continue to make that vow to practice. And in each and every moment, we can awaken. We can enter into big minds, some call it. Boundless mind. That's always there. We're always there. It's just that we don't see it. Our typical view is a limited view. And limited views are good for limited purposes. That's why they exist. But, but our species doesn't seem to be content with limited purposes. I guess that's why we become religious, right? Spiritual. It's that seeking for something beyond the limits of our ordinary existence. There's that sense of dukkha, of, of not being satisfactory. It's not quite it. So the search goes on and on. So this, this uh, I've already talked about pointing directly to one's mind as being one of the uh, teachings practices, uh, ways of, of, uh, of transmitting this Dharma. And actually the description of the, of the transmission of this Dharma as mind to mind transmission is pointing to this. Mind itself, mind here and now is Buddha. So that story that's come down to us about the first transmission from Shakyamuni to Mahakashyapa, the holding up of the flower, the smile, no words exchanged. Because this is a teaching that doesn't rely on words and letters. It's mind to mind. Pointing to another fascicle of Dogen, Yui Butsu Yo Butsu, only Buddhas and Buddhas. So that when you practice with a teacher, it's it's your it's it's a mind-to-mind -mind relationship. And because mind itself is Buddha. In that connectedness, there is transmission. 
even though, of course, nothing's being transmitted, right? <laughs> but the, mis the mystery of this mind itself is Buddha. And how a statement like that could be so profound and get to the heart of things. It's, it's good sometimes, I think, to pull ourselves back from all our, our Zen indoctrination and practice and just kind of with beginner's mind, look at a statement like that. How would that resonate with the average Joe and Josephine out there? Mind here and now is Buddha. It sounds, there's something enticing, intriguing about it, but it's, uh, it's very much in that cloud of unknowing. So we're also connecting through this teaching with, with this fundamental aspect of Zen practice of the Buddha way as laid out by Dogen, that the study of Zen is the study of the self, self-inquiry, because mind itself is Buddha. So where do we start? Self. Mind. We start with this practice of clarifying the self. Understanding the self through this intimate study of just being present with, seeing in a non-judgmental way, that's why that's so important in, in the practice of zazen, just seeing directly mind, our experience. How do we respond to things? How do we create our world? It's very important that we, we engage in that practice. Otherwise, you know, the net result is we end up creating a world that we haven't paid any attention to. So mind here and now is Buddha. Buddha is awakening. So it's kind of a call to practice. The arousing of, of bodhicitta. To feel that sense of, of the urgency of this life of this mind, 
this experience, that each experience we have moment by moment by moment is so rich and precious. And that, I think, gets me to a point where I'd like to uh, share uh, another beautiful uh, story, teaching, involving mind itself as Buddha. Uh, because that's a teaching that doesn't originate with Dogen. I'm clear about that. Uh, Matsu, one of the most important teachers in in all the Zen traditions, whose dates are uh, 709 to 788. So he's like 500 years prior to Dogen. He's uh, one of the original ancestors. He probably did more than anybody to make this a foundational teaching in Zen. And there are several stories about his conveying that teaching to students. My own favorite is the one that I'd like to share with you this morning. And it involves a student who after this exchange would, uh, would go off and, and establish his own uh, temple. Uh, Chan Master Fa Cheng. And uh, when he went to see Matsu for the first time, he asked the common question of the day, what is Buddha? Let's cut to the chase. Let's set aside all the idle talk. <laughs> first time you meet uh, a teacher, what is Buddha? I love it. Nobody ever asked me stuff like that. <laughs> the pay, and uh, Matsu replies, mind is Buddha. And on hearing this, Fa Cheng had great awakening. It's powerful teaching. That was enough to, uh, to allow him to, to enter the realm of, of Buddha. Later, he went to live on Tame Mountain. And when Matsu heard that he was residing on the mountain, he sent one of his monks to go there and ask him, what did the Venerable One obtain when he saw Matsu so that he has come to live on this mountain? So Matsu sending a monk to, to kind of do a little digging. What was it that you... Uh... <laughs> What changed for you? And uh, Fa Chang says, well, Matsu told me that mind is Buddha. So I came here to live. That's all. Didn't go on and on about it. Just real simple. But the monk said, Matsu's teaching has changed recently. <laughs> Fa Chang asks, what's the difference? The monk said, nowadays, he says, no mind, no Buddha, neither mind nor Buddha. That's the teaching. <laughs> 
Fa Chang said, that old man still hasn't stopped confusing people. You can have neither mind nor Buddha. I only care for mind is Buddha. The monk returned to Matsu and reported what, what had happened. And uh, Matsu then said, the plum is ripe, meaning he, he really, <laughs> he got it. It wasn't, it, it's, it's receiving these teachings in ways that aren't clinging, aren't grasping, that if somebody, because and Dogen was the master at this sort of move. To, to take a, a standard accepted teaching and turn it topsy-turvy. Because all the teachings have that trait within them. And if you don't make that move to demonstrate that to people, then the tendency is to cling to it. In which case, then Fa Chang would have, this would have just, you know, uh, caused him to become very, very confused and question the whole point of what, what his practice had been for all these years. And in some tellings of this story, it's like 30 years had passed. So, to realize there's no, no mind, no Buddha, nothing being transmitted. And yet, you know, this, this middle way. So we, we hear that and we want to go there. So, well, then nothing matters, right? That's the middle way is pointing to the fact that that reality is non-dualistic. So as soon as we, as Taoism teaches, as soon as you set, establish white, you establish black, and and people start choosing sides. But the reality is not either side. So we can, from each side, each side contains everything. So we can enter from any place. That's why, where do we practice? Where do we awaken? Right here. It doesn't need to be any special place. The right place, every place is the right place. but it requires practice. And that's another part of this teaching that Dogen was, was extremely adamant about. And that's the importance of practice because this teaching also became known as like original enlightenment. It's the fact that we all are Buddha nature. And Dogen, of course, taught that. But they took it in the sense that, well, you know, everybody's already enlightened. 
And for Dogen, the, the role of practice, he was not a proponent of taking that everybody is Buddha nature. And then let's just say he was very sensitive to the danger contained in that teaching. But that wasn't the sum total of it. That all the Buddhist teachings about energy and effort, they're there for a reason, that this is a practice. And because mind and Buddha are here and now, it's an ongoing continuous practice, moment after moment after moment, when we choose to engage it. If we choose to engage it at all. But it's always there. So the sincerity of practice comes from this, this aspiration, the, the arising of bodhicitta. It's sincere, it's heartfelt. And we continue to come back to it time and time again. So an important way of, of seeing this, this teaching of, of mind and Buddha and the transmission of this from Buddhas to Buddhas is that the mind that has been authentically transmitted means one mind as all dharmas and all dharmas as one mind. So this is where this notion of big mind uh, arises from. That all dharmas are in this mind. Nothing is excluded. Nothing is hidden. Everything is there. including all our ancient twisted karma, everything. So practice is long-term, it's continuous, doesn't come to an end. Long-term with diligence. That's practice. An awakening, because Dogen equated practice and enlightenment or awakening. Practice is awakening. It's like he just joined them together. Practice enlightenment. When we practice, it is to awaken. 
to awaken to the all dharmas that are the one mind. To see that present each and every moment. Which is why to seek for this is to miss the whole point. There's nothing to seek for. Everything is present in each and every experience. Seeking, as Matsu would say, is just heading off in the complete opposite direction. You need to come back to right where you are. Stop seeking. Open your eyes, your mind, your heart to what's right here. That's not to say seeking doesn't bring probably all of us to this practice, to this path. But ultimately, on this path, there needs to be this, this settling in, the practice of zazen, and fully becoming here and now, mind here and now is Buddha. Make that a daily practice. Make that a community practice. Make that periodically uh, an extended, more intensive practice of mind here and now. Mind itself is Buddha. Nothing else needed. No additional props needed. We don't need uh, any of these uh, sound props, sound of flowing water. If that's there, fine. It's not a hindrance, but we don't need the prop. just as it is, right here, right now. This is where we enter. That's Dogen's Genjo Koan. Oh, I think. That's probably a good place for me to stop. See if there's what that brings up for, for you.
Dean, I'd like to thank you um, very much for your talk today. It was a really great encouragement for sitting. Um, I, I wish I could say that I had a sitting practice that was you know, perfect on a daily basis. And I, I still struggle with that, still struggle with a daily practice. But um, what I liked about what you said is, is the notion of clarifying the self. You use that phrase, clarifying the self, that you know, I, I've often heard the Dogen phrase, to study the self is to forget the self. And or to study to study Zen is to study the self, to study right. the self is to forget the self, and so on. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the way you phrased it today that it's an opportunity to clarify who the self is in an incredibly intimate practice and in an incredibly intimate practice that's non judgmental, yeah. which takes the thinking out of it, the discerning, the picking and choosing the good and the bad, you know, this, this dualism. Um, and it's funny when I think about the moments where I have had a greater kind of awareness, not enlightenment experience. I'm not talking about that. I haven't had that, but there are times when I just, uh, have a deeper awareness. And I remember once, um, I had a sister who was, sharing some problems with me, it, lengthy, you know, face-to-face, face-to-face, but she was talking for, and crying for maybe 45 minutes, maybe 50 minutes. And I was listening because, because of practice, I can, I can focus for that long without a problem, you know? Yeah. And uh, there was this moment where she paused and a smile, just arose from me naturally because there was this part of me that felt so intimately connected to her in, in that moment. Um, and I could, I could put words to it afterwards, which were things like, you know, gratitude that she trusted me enough to share those things and gratitude for my practice because it allowed me to sit still and take that in and so on and so on and so on. All those words that come afterwards to explain that brief moment of pure connectedness and silence. She had stopped talking. And there were no words that you could put to it. Just a smile arose. And about three weeks later, she said to me by phone, you know, the other day when I was at your house and I was struggling, I said, yeah, she said, I felt so warm when you just looked up at me and smiled. And I thought that's transmission. That is, that is the um, unconditional mind. Not the mind that's looking at the clock wondering how long she's gonna go on. Not the mind that wants to get hooks and hooked, hooked into being able to help her or offer some suggestion. Not the mind that wants to defray her pain. Not none of that. A, a pure period of listening without judgment followed by this sense of the, the deep intimacy shared between two people in the moment of silence. And your talk really brought that up for me strongly today. Um, 
Genjo Koan and Just As It Is, uh, the notion of um, mind, mind here and now, just as it is. One of my uh, struggles in sitting daily is to face the mind here and now, just as it is. Because <laughs> 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 uh, the judgmental mind is always there, unless one uh, does go back and do what's happened for me this morning, which is to connect with Sangha, to connect with members who are aspiring to live to the the vows of the precepts. You know, us we have this aspiration as a group to be encouraged by a teacher. You know, once Reb said that he felt that his role was to listen and encourage. That was his as a teacher, that's what you do. That's your job. Listen and encourage. Um, and then to feel the bodhicitta arise again, this reinvigoration of practice and, and um, excitement about exploring the mystery of it as opposed to having aversion to what one premeditates will arise, which is thinking that one doesn't necessarily want to face. And um, the funny thing is that when my practice is regular, that fear of not wanting to face what arises lessens and lessens and lessens because the practice holds holds that as it arises, holds things as they arise and therefore doesn't accumulate as much and doesn't, you know, isn't quite as chatty Cathy. So I really was inspired by your talk this morning. Thank you very much. And I love a story about uh, your experience with your sister and the smile during Baha Kashyapa. <laughs> and who knows how long they, the, the disciples were sitting there waiting for a talk. And <laughs> Baha Kashyapa was, was okay with that. He sees a flower and he's ready with his smile, just like you Yeah, interesting. Very what beautiful. was the uh, uh, A. Dogen's cause of death? What, what did he die from? You know, I had heard it at one point, uh, but it's uh, it escapes my mind right now. There was an illness prior, so it was uh, wasn't a sudden death. But. Yeah, young. He seems. It seems very young. Yeah. I mean, even for that time. It's even for that time, I, I would agree. Yeah. What is it that you do when you find, I mean, or do you find your practice flagging ever? Do you find yourself? Boy, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, when you were talking about uh, a daily routine, normally I, I really am able to, uh, to do that uh, without too much difficulty. However, for the last three weeks, uh, by right shoulder, I've got a, Sling here that uh, <laughs> and doing zazen is just not not good. In fact, it really came to a head during uh, last month's zazenkai, which was the six-hour marathon session. 
and uh, uh, that was one I just gutted out. And I have not been able to practice sitting for for an entire period. So that's why for anybody who comes on for any of our sittings before the talk, uh, I'm logged in, but you won't see me sitting uh, because I'm out in the Zendo here for the most part, I'll do a little bit of, of Zazen, but for the most part, I've had to adapt and now I do kin hit. And actually what's happened is uh, I've, I'm exploring new depths of kin hit practice. So it's, it's been interesting uh, for sure. But, uh, you know, if, if this doesn't get better in a few weeks, I guess I'll have to break down and let them take pictures and see what's going on there. But uh, there are, you know, times where physically things come up and, uh, and we have, have to adapt. Uh, uh, and, you know, because without the regular practice, it really, you know, as I've heard a number of other people have commented over the years as well, that, it just really, uh, you, you notice the difference pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So that it's, it's kind of easy I, from that standpoint to, to have the motivation to get back to the practice that, oh, I mean, I know what, what it feels like if I'm not doing that. So this is, uh, this is something that's really important. And what I, what I, uh, and going through now, you know, kind of my, my uh, mind starts uh, uh, reflecting, thinking about what it'll be like to be able to do Zazen again. And I start thinking, boy, I'm going to want to binge. I've got to go on a week's hermitage. <laughs> I'm just going to drown in Zazen because <laughs> I do miss it. <laughs> But I'm, I'm making do as best I can. Uh, uh, yeah, so for people who do come come to me about uh, about practice and and yeah, people can be harsh on themselves about their level of practice, not feeling like they're practicing enough. And you know, this is where it comes back to to just practicing keep coming back because it's continuous practice. It's always available to you and don't pin it down to any particular thing. I mean, if you go through a period where you can't do Zazen, find something else you're doing. If you have a period where, where you can't do Kinhin or Zazen, just, you know, do something else that practice is about, you know, just, uh, Mind here and now is Buddha. And there's so many ways we can enter into that. You know, work practice. That's why a sashin or intensive practice schedule is filled with all the activities of daily living, eating, having a meal. No matter how busy you are, you're going to do that. There's an opportunity for practice. Just find the opportunities as part of your daily life. And then when uh, circumstances allow you to get back to other aspects of the practice and practice with a community 
I mean, I miss the other thing I, I'm starting to uh, really dawn on me is how much I miss actually sitting with all of you. That's getting starting to get a little hard. <laughs> For sure. So, uh, but, but we just keep going. Keep going. Thank you. No, no, thank you, Jane. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Yeah, Dean, I uh, wanted to chime in there also to thank you for your teaching, um, as well as, um, you know, uh, it's pretty amazing how it dovetailed with what we were working on yesterday when we were talking about the experience of transmission between, you know, teacher and student, and of course, you know, studying the self and dropping off the self and going beyond the self. Um, and I also wanted to comment that, that everything that we do is practice if we approach it from that um, point of view. Um, and I, I have a fairly eclectic practice. Um, I live with a Nichiren Buddhist and I do the Nichiren practice with her and I do some Hindu chanting and um, uh, of course Zazen and, um, and you know, our practice of working with others and all of it is, is, uh, is, is some form of practice. And of course our practice is not limited to just Zen Buddhism. Uh, many people practice in many, many different ways. And um, we can also be practiced by, you know, by the universe. We could, we could be walking around totally oblivious and then suddenly be hit by an awareness or realization of course, there's certain things we can do to, you know, to, to help that along or to be more open um, to, to those kinds of realizations or awarenesses. But, but everything that we do is practice enlightenment and not just us practicing, but our, our, us being practiced um, by everything that occurs. Um, so it's a, it's a back and forth mutual kind of, you know, we live in this world and the world lives in us. Um, so, um, and I, I really like what you um, ended with the idea of not needing props. It certainly caused me to think about what props I use to prop myself up, to prop my ego up and, and, and what can be let go of. And there's always more and more that can be let go of. So uh, anyways, thank you for that, Dean. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. I like that because uh, I work a, in a 12-step program as well, and so much of that is one-to-one -one transmission. So much of that is being fully present, you know, and being in a listening mode. I mean, so there is, there's a lot of practice. And I, I was just um, admiring some peonies in the yard of the house that I'm selling that my husband had planted. And uh, the moment, you know, the, the uh, activity of admiring those flowers and then you know trimming a couple of them to bring home with me and stuff it, it, they're practice areas but they're happening so practice is happening so spontaneously that one does not uh, classify it as a zen activity but it's bringing your whole heart open-heartedly into something which in a sense chris is what you're saying that that's the universe practicing you you're not even in your mind calling for that or, or uh, Dean, as you said, seeking it. 
you're not walking into the backyard saying, let me practice Zen in the garden. It's the garden is practicing you. The universe is practicing you. I like that a lot. That's that whole notion, isn't it, of the giver-receiver gift. Yeah. Practice, yeah. you know, am I practicing? Am I seeking to practice? Am I judging that I'm not practicing? And then the practice coming and working you. Just that whole notion. Very interesting. Thank you for the feedback, both of you. I appreciate it. Well, takes the pressure off that we don't have to create something all the time. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It's, it's really the middle way too. I mean, if we ultimately think about it, that we're not all, we're not the one that's constantly driving the Zen process. But then, if you create something beautiful, you can't take credit for it either. You just have to say. <laughs> I just got out of the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I didn't get in the way of it. <laughs> yeah, help, very helpful. I think for me, just being present and uh, listening to the Dharma talk um, provides like a, just a remi reminder or remembering because it's, I feel like I've heard this before uh, what you've talked about today. But then at the same time, I think, oh, I must have a built-in forgetter because it just brings me back to, the, to being okay with wherever I'm at in my practice. And I, cause sometimes I think, oh, I've only been practicing for three, you know, almost three years. Um, and I know that, you know, we're not, it's not about a goal, but it's and grasping for something. But I feel like with what you talked about, the practices long-term with diligence and, you know, when I sit here today and I think, wow, I, you know, just, I've spent so much of my life um, grasping or seeking not feeling um, pr present or comfortable with wherever, maybe wherever, wherever I am, where, whether it's a location or a job or it, it, it just anything. I mean, I grew up with seven brothers and sisters and I thought I should have been the only child. I mean, it just goes back to as far as I can remember, I just was like seeking something else than what I, whatever my present condition was. Um, so anyhow, I don't know, that's just all I had to say really is that it just kind of, it's like a reminder of just being present in the here and now and and for and for some reason, just listening and hearing and taking it in, especially like what's going on in the world right now and all the crises and the pandemics and the protests and I, you know, it it's like ah, I want what's going to happen. Like my mind is so focused on the future, and you know, it's like. I have no control over the future. So I think this practice of zazen and 
really is helpful. And I don't know how it happened, but if anybody needs a walking stick, let me know because um, just the past couple of weeks, I have been whittling branch uh, sticks into walking. Uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm getting a collection of walking sticks, <laughs> and and it's been like since you mentioned that. No matter what you do, it I I just sit there in the yard and it it's like a um it's like a zazen because I'm just I'm just you know, it's it's just there's something about it that is so. Um, uh, calming and uh, all consuming and it's and it's just like being present in the moment you know because i cut myself once and i probably wasn't in the moment <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you got to pay attention <laughs> you got to stay focused <laughs> i'm putting that out there free walking sticks <laughs> <laughs> Well, if that's everything, maybe we'll go ahead and chant out and let everybody get out there and enjoy this beautiful day. And let Mark get out and do some more uh, walking sticks for us. <laughs> May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of this way. Are it's way it's unsurpassable to become it. 